rising. We have a fantastic show for you today. <laughs> Brianna Joy Gray is back in studio. It's very nice to see you, Brianna. It's good to be back. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, as ah, they say. <laughs> ah, well, we, we shall see. <laughs> We have a great lineup for you today, truly. We do. Our rising panel will discuss Jill Biden's comments where she compared the diversity of Latino voters to the diversity of tacos. And Emily Jashinsky is going to fact check a viral story that alleged a 10-year-old needed an abortion. And of course, Kim Iverson will join us a little later on. But first, the administration will once again extend the COVID public health emergency which was set to expire this Friday. Instead, they will be extending it this Friday, according to a person familiar with the matter. Now, this comes as COVID cases have been rising across the country. In New York, cases have risen 24% in the past two weeks. The emergency designation has given millions of Americans special access to Medicaid, while U.S. regulators have also used emergency powers to clear vaccines and therapeutics. This comes as the Biden administration is readying 32 million doses of Novavax, a vaccine that, as of now, can only be authorized under emergency use for those 18 and older. HHS said that Novavax could offer an option to people who may have an allergic reaction to mRNA vaccines or who have a personal preference for receiving a vaccine other than mRNA-based vaccines. A senior White House official reportedly told CNN that the administration is also working on a plan to allow second boosters for all adults. Currently, they are only authorized for adults ages 50 and over, uh, which fine. You know, I, I always say, yes, authorize it. Give everyone the option to do whatever they want. Um, I can't imagine a second round of boosters is going to be the people are going to just be lining up to get them in mm -hmm. the under 50 category nor do we really have any reason to expect that a somewhat higher booster or more booster shots among that demographic is going to really translate to anything, right? It's not going to have a significant effect on hospitalizations. It's barely going to have anything to do with deaths. Well, I mean, these and are, this, this is the fundamental question from my perspective, is now that we know that the vaccines and the boosters don't have the same effect in with respect to stopping transmission that we thought they did mm -hmm. initially, the fundamental question is whether or not they sufficiently make your symptoms upon getting COVID um, diminished that it lowers hospitalization rates. I think that's the biggest public safety concern is whether or not hospitals again become overburdened at some point. So if it is true that getting additional boosters continues your protection against the worst effects of COVID, I think there are many people who would be interested in continuing having that sort of protection. But I, I would argue that that's the message you know, that mm -hmm. the, the CDC needs to do and their former lack of clarity on that point and the reasons why you should get a vaccine being it being about your own kind of your own, your own, guarding your own health right, against right. the worst effects of things and also keeping yourself out of the hospital population, that they need to really land that if they hope for people to comply. Right. It's, it's about your own health, not really the preventing transmission very much. Yeah. I mean, we're, these variants, what we're at now, are just highly, extremely transmissible. No one is under any illusions that a, a vaccinated or a more vaccinated or a more boosted public is having some significant effect on preventing transmission. It's not clear that anything is having a significant impact on preventing transmission. Uh, but that's but that aside, that's fine. It doesn't matter. It, you can still 
you know, want to choose the vaccine or an additional booster for yourself or your own health. Certainly, I think if you're under 50 and you're still at some people, if you have morbid obesity, if you have an immunocompromised condition, absolutely it makes sense for you. And, and I'm not, your doctor might make sense for, sense yeah. for other people. Um, and even you know, if you're getting your 40s, your 50s, um, yeah, some people I, are I in poor health. But there are a lot of people who fall into that category. I think sometimes we talk about folks who are uniquely vulnerable to COVID as though they are a discrete, very small population. But we live in a country that has pretty high rates of obesity. We live in a country where we have high rates of diseases like asthma, especially in urban centers where kids that grow up in cities tend to have a very high incidence of those kinds of um, ailments. You know, if you tally up all the different ways to be immunocompromised, whether you're a cancer survivor or have other some other kind of lupus or some other kind of uh, autoimmune disease, you're talking about a very significant part of the conversation, a uh, population rather, and it's important that our conversation about how, you know, the healthiest people might not have as much benefit doesn't mislead people, I think, into thinking, oh, then mm -hmm. I probably am, am not one of the people who needs to be attuned to this sort of thing. That's true. There's, and there's certainly a category of person who doesn't understand that they themselves are not as healthy, right, right. as they might think they are. Right. Um, so certainly people should take that very seriously. But it's not as, and as long as we're operating at the level of Here's what you ought to do. Here's what you can do, rather than requirement. That's yeah. Fine. It looks like the the mandate world is kind of in our rear, rear view. It looks like the extension of so. this emergency, um, the emergency COVID relief here is largely to keep people with their access to the expanded Medicaid programs, which is also kind of an interesting policy choice, perhaps the Biden administration recognizing that it shouldn't yank away all of these COVID era benefits and the lead up to midterm elections when so many of them were popular. And, it, and COVID taught many Americans that the government has the capacity to support and help them in a way that it has denied it has the capacity to do for so many years. And there's some, I think, political benefit to, you know, not saying no more Medicaid for you, mm -hmm. but uh, as we, still are in the middle of the ongoing American health crisis, un-COVID un related, just the reality of having an employer-based healthcare the system that lets so many people down. Pandemic has also showed us government's capacity to epically screw up logistical issues. Speaking of which, uh, we want to talk about the monkeypox uh, vaccine. You want to let us know what we're hearing about here? Yeah, well, according to reports, the U.S. government spent at least $2 billion ma developing and manufacturing a monkeypox vaccine in Denmark, but the FDA has refused to import the shots after it failed to inspect the plant and then refused the EU's inspection that deemed the facility safe. One million doses are currently stuck at that plant in Denmark. <sighs> so this is the exact same problem we keep encountering. So we bought the or we, we made we manufactured these vaccines in Denmark and the EU medical safety officials inspected the plant and said it was all fine. But our our FDA didn't do it, so no, well, it's no good. We just we can't we can't take those monkeypox vaccines. Psychotically stupid. Yeah, I, I think that the solution is they should go ahead and inspect the plant. I don't know. Like, do we know anything about why it is that they didn't they're, inspect they're just, the plant? Like, they just do that. They they have this like obsession with their own power or something. It's like bureaucracy. Like, oh no, we didn't fill out the proper forms. Guess we can't get people the medicine they might need. Like anything that and. 
who cares if the FDA inspects anything that is inspected by European? Like, I'm not distrustful of European health officials. If if European health officials say it's fine, it's probably fine. Like, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm a very I'm a patriotic American. I I, I, I like the U.S., but I, I I trust the medical inspectors in Europe. We're not like talking about some alien planet or something. It's 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 freaking Europe. If they say if if Denmark's people say it's fine. Probably fine. Or you can put a little disclosure like, warning, the FDA has not vetted this, just the top scientists in Denmark. Okay, thanks. Can I take it now? Yeah, well, I don't know that the standard it's Europe as opposed to it's, I don't know what other country we're supposed to believe is not up to the medical standards of Europe. I mean, I am a little uncomfortable with this idea that we're supposed to put a faith in one country or another because if we feel it has like safety vibes. If Europe, if Denmark does have safety protocols that are commensurate with what we have in the United States and the FDA, then I Man, think I don't I, want to slant. I, I could name I, a country who, whose <laughs> medical officials I would, I would not well, trust as much. I don't want to start well, I don't know. Like, I, uh, I was, randomly. You know, I was recently talking to some public health officials um, last week who were pointing out that there was some weird geopolitics about where va vaccines come from, where certain European countries are very skeptical of that vaccines are manufactured in India, for instance, for no real reason other than mm, they feel like the Indian vaccine, which is at a much lower cost point and was much more um, viable for the low-income European country it was supposed to be sent to than the American vaccine. They just didn't want it because it was an Indian vaccine and not because there was any conversation about substantively the vaccine or the medication being poorly produced or less safe and those kinds of things. But broadly, I take your point. If it is true that somebody's oversight mechanisms are commensurate with what we have in the United States, I don't see instinctively a reason to require the double um, the double check over. However, I do think this goes back to a conversation we were having a few weeks ago around the Abbott baby formula crisis, where it came out in the radar that I did that week, that part of the issue was that the FDA had been routinely defunded and that whistleblower report sat on somebody's desk for weeks and weeks, simply because there was no one there to look at it and not the support at the agency to actually do those kinds of checks. And so I do think that there, I, I think a lot of your critiques of government are right and fair, Robbie. But it's also true that neoliberalism has meant the gutting of our government and their ability to do anything. And I think a lot of older viewers especially remember a time when the government was very capable of doing a lot of things in this country and we were very proud of it. Most of the swimming pools that people swim in to this day, libraries that they go to, public facilities that they go to, highways that they drive on, were built by our government back when they had much greater capacity. And a lot of the social programs that are the most popular ones in the country, like Medicare for Medicare and Medicaid and all of these things, were established during a time where we didn't have a government filled with technocrats, but people who worked in industries and knew how to implement things, and in doing so also employ a lot of Americans in jobs that enable the middle class to grow, be created, and thrive in the well, first place. Well, there's no doubt it's gone wildly off track, the capacity for the government to do things. We would probably disagree on exactly what the causes of that are. But anyway, I want to get this monkey pa uh, monkeypox vaccine into the U.S., into people who need it. This is a nasty... Have you seen the, pic the pictures of people who've actually gotten... This isn't now the pictures from, like, a decade ago when there was an outbreak. Um, it's an, and it's not, it's not super contagious, but it's mm -hmm. also not... It's not sexually transmitted. It's not... You're only going to get it if you're like having unsafe sex in a certain kind of population or so. It, like it, it is transmissible. It's not nearly as transmissible as COVID, but you like you can get it, mm. and you don't want to get it. Mm. Um, so I don't know. I'm, well, I'm sure we'll continue to follow that. Maybe maybe we can look forward to a radar about exactly what's going on with the pox. oversight of the monkeypox vaccine. But I look forward to whatever your radar is about this week next, Robbie.
Robbie, what's on your radar today? Well, Joe Biden was elected president with a clear mandate to break from the elite D.C. foreign policy consensus of endlessly involving the U.S. in regime change wars across the earth. Biden isn't alone in that. His two predecessors, Donald Trump and Barack Obama, under whom Biden served as vice president, were both elected with similar mandates. The American people's willingness to involve the U.S. military in the civil wars of foreign nations and to spend billions of dollars policing other countries' borders, shot up following the 9-11 attacks, peaked in the middle part of the aughts under George Bush, and then rapidly subsided as everyone, Democrats and Republicans alike, realized that overthrowing Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein was a horrible mistake. Obama promised to get the U.S. military out of Afghanistan and was elected to do just that. He failed. Then Trump promised to do the same thing, and he also failed. Ultimately, Biden has finally delivered on this decade-old promise, getting the U.S. out of Afghanistan, albeit in disastrously mismanaged fashion. Now, you would think Biden might grasp that his voters want fewer wars, fewer foreign commitments. They want the focus here, at home. And yet the Biden administration has committed the U.S. to providing defense to the nation of Ukraine, an entanglement that is rapidly becoming a proxy war with Russia and carries the constant risk of spilling into an actual war with Russia as we send arms to the Ukrainians and attempt, in vain, to throttle Russia economically. The cost for Americans who never chose this war is steep. Empowering Ukraine to continue this conflict is one of the many causes of inflation and high gas prices. It would be reasonable for the American voter to wonder how much longer the Biden administration plans to continue this war effort. There's little appetite for it among frustrated, economically weary, working-class Americans. But within the Biden administration, there's plenty of appetite. Yesterday, Real Clear News reporter Philip Wegman, a friend of the show, asked National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan whether there is, quote, any limiting principle in terms of the time or money that the U.S. is prepared to spend in defense of Ukraine. Sullivan responded that Biden's view is as long as it takes. Biden meant as long as it takes, and that's where the United States is prepared to stand. As long as it takes. That's how long the administration wants you to put up with high gas prices and inflation. As long as it takes. It might be impossible to stop Russia from claiming the area of Ukraine it has set out to conquer, after all. It might be impossible barring a level of U.S. involvement that would be akin to direct war and would risk nuclear escalation, nuclear annihilation. But in which case, as long as it takes, well, then that's going to be code for forever. And keep in mind that forever was how long the mission in Afghanistan was taking until Biden finally, wisely, gave it up. Though I don't want to give Biden too much credit even here because he's clearly confused or dishonest about how much the U.S. military is involved in the Middle East. Biden is actually visiting the Middle East later this week and has bragged that he will be the first president since 9-11 to make such a visit without, quote, U.S. troops engaged in a combat mission there. As he wrote in an op-ed for the Washington Post, quote, throughout my journey, I'll have in mind the millions of Americans who served in the region, including my son, Bo, and the 7,054 who died in conflicts in the Middle East and Afghanistan since September 11th, 2001. Next week, I will be the first president to visit the Middle East since 9-11 without U.S. troops engaged in a combat mission there. It's my aim to keep it that way, end quote. But as my colleague at Reason Magazine, Fiona Harrigan, pointed out, this claim is a lie. Biden has previously seemed well aware that it's a lie. In a recent letter to Congress, he outlined all sorts of U.S. troop involvements in the Middle East. Certainly sound a lot like combat. These include, 
quote, working by, with, and through local partners to conduct operations against ISIS forces in Iraq and Syria and against al-Qaeda in Syria, troops deployed to Yemen to conduct operations against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and against ISIS. In Saudi Arabia, there are 2,733 U.S. troops defending, quote, against hostile action by Iran and Iran-backed groups and providing air and missile defense capabilities. We have people fighting ISIS in Jordan. We have people fighting ISIS in Turkey. And they may not be combat missions, but our arms deals with Saudi Arabia are certainly producing combat fatalities in Yemen. Quote, Biden's rejected forever wars when he terminated the war in Afghanistan, but he has not applied this principle anywhere else. It's according to Stephen Wertheim, a senior fellow at the American Statecraft Program at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He also says denying the existence of U.S. wars positively participates in their continuation as invisible and endless operations. But the Ukrainian operation will go on for as long as it takes. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, by the way, has dissolved rival political parties and consolidated the country's TV platforms into one state-broadcasted entity. So he's centralizing power, signaling that he will govern in an illiberal and autocratic manner. Now, maybe these developments will reverse themselves after the war. Again, a war that might go on forever, because as long as it takes, right? As long as it takes. That's the Biden administration's line on what we're doing about this conflict, as long as it takes. And it's just, I mean, help me understand, what are they, what are they thinking? <laughs> what are they thinking both, both strategically in terms of, of the war, which is clearly like not, like not going to end with a Ukrainian defeat of Russia and can only end in some kind of agreement between the two nations, clearly where Ukraine is going to forfeit some territory. That's just being, re that's strategically. And then also, why is this their strategy, given how, how fed up the American people are with it? Robbie, asking me to translate <laughs> what's going on in the mind of the average Democrat, much less Joe Biden himself, is a tall order that I'm not sure I'm up to <laughs> this morning. But look, it's, it's, it's politically ignorant. It's substantively and ethically ignorant. And I got to say, I have been, since the beginning of this conflict, long before I had any kind of substantive knowledge about what precipitated it or what it was going to be like asked guests on my show over and over and over again just to answer one question. It is, what is the metric? What is the rubric by which America is making decisions to get involved here and not elsewhere? Yes. Like, what is the reason? Because yes. without being able to define why we're getting involved now and what the parameters of our involvement are, it was obvious to me that we were going to potentially end up in a place exactly like this. And, a, and this place, by the way, is one which, to your point, could lead to a direct conflict with Russia. Because what are we really saying? Are we really saying that America is going to be involved to do whatever it takes to prevent Russia from it keeping these territories? And if that, that means that if simply sending arms and weapons to Ukraine isn't enough, and it won't what's be. the next step in that escalation? <laughs> right. American troops and in, in, troop involvement, American boots on the ground, the kind of... Um, uh, you know, launching of weapons in, at Russians that can no longer have this veil of plausible deniability that it's not coming from the United States of America. That's, that's, that's war with a nuclear power, right? And the fact that it has taken to this point, you know, since February, all of these months since February, for people even to be asking these kinds of questions is deeply frustrating to me as a journalist and as an American. And that Joe Biden seemingly understood that there was an appetite for withdrawing from Afghanistan and that that was something that he was wanted to make 
his, you know, wanted to make a, a, signal, a signal of his administration, something right. that he was going to do despite a lot of pushback from the Democratic Party. And then to turn around and do this, it's mind-boggling. And the only way I can try to understand it is to look to the choices that the administration has made in putting a Lockheed Martin, uh, a former Lockheed Martin CEO mm -hmm. as Secretary of Defense, of spending time and taking time out of his schedule to go and visit defense manufacturing companies in the United States, and clearly having a policy approach that benefits people who make weapons instead of the people who have to fight wars. Yeah, it makes no sense. You have to, you have to take the view that because it, it can't be purely humanitarian, because there's humanitarian problems all over the world that we're not getting involved in, although maybe we would if Joe Biden had more personal knowledge of them. Maybe <laughs> we would be sending troops, I guess. Jeez. So it can't be humanitarian. It can only be... So then you have to say... And we're not committed to defending Ukraine, because they're, they're actually not in NATO. So then you have to get yourself into the place in like a real politic kind of... It's, it's important to our interests to prevent Russia from doing this. Now... It's, I think it's hard to argue that, or, or, or given the cost, which, which is significant, and that it's not working. We, can't we just say, you know what, we, we tried something, we tried the sanctions, we tried sending our, we were hoping to inflict enough uh, indirect pain to deter Russia from doing this. It didn't work, and this is just going to go on, and we are going to suffer, and the American voters don't want it. Yeah, they just clearly don't yeah. want it. It feels like a game of chicken. Yeah. But if you think about what the geopolitical circumstances are, it was a game of chicken that America was always going to lose. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? The many experts, um, you know, Andrew Kober and others who I've talked to, have pointed out the fact that Ukraine is of significantly greater strategic and military value to Russia. They're stakes are higher to have control in the region. And like strategically, it's easier for, they're right there, it's easier for them mm -hmm. to be there. It's, they have a, you know, an enormous country with a great deal of manpower and they don't have to do this cloak and dagger of I'm not really involved, I'm doing a proxy war, et cetera, et cetera. And the idea that we were going to send some billions of dollars in aid and weapons to Ukraine. And that was going to cause Russia to say, oh, never mind. You know, and remember, this was all done in the context of the Western media pretending as though Ukraine was winning and there were valiant soldiers and that this was like a video game right. where they were going to vanquish all of the Russians from the territory. Right. And they've had to back away from some of that reporting as it just simply wasn't corroborated. It simply wasn't true. And Zelensky's consolidating power, you know, doing all the kinds of autocratic things that we condemn when governments we don't like do it than when governments we're friendly with do it. Like, well, you know, what can we do? We have to, we have to work with some unsavory characters. Uh, but then it just, the, the entire project of promoting our values or of fostering yeah. our values, democracy, liberalism, free speech, et cetera, in other countries, that ends up looking very, that, com that commitment, that drive ends up looking very hollow and yeah. very sad when yeah. the, the countries were on their side end up squelching those things. Yeah. Democrats used to be an anti-intervention party. I remember yeah. coming up in college, used my to first be. opportunity on used to, be. to vote during the Iraq war, and that was a central mobilizing mm -hmm. um, policy point for people in the early aughts. Nowadays, yeah. the Democrats have aligned themselves with this particular intervention so strongly that having a Ukraine flag in your Twitter emoji is a sign of your liberal politics. And I don't know how you get out of this one. Yep. That's amazing. When I was uh, at uh, undergrad at University of Michigan, by far the two most popular political figures was a Democrat and a Republican. It was Barack mm. Obama mm. and Ron Paul, mm. because they were the two most anti-Iraq war voices by far. And that was what was animating people at the time. Now we live in very different times. We live in very different times indeed. Fortunately, Well, we'll have more rising right after this.
the war between Russia and Ukraine wages on unabated. Yesterday, the Biden administration's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, said Russia is turning to Iran for help to beef up its weapons arsenal. The White House believes Iran will give hundreds of drones to Russia, and Putin is set to visit Tehran next week. Senior fellow and military expert at Defense Priorities, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, joins us now to discuss. So what is you know, the latest in Russia, Ukraine, and, you know, why are they turning to Iran? Why is Russia turning to Iran uh, for help at this point? Yeah, the, this, uh, they're in what's the, the Russians are in what's called kind of a, an operational pause at the moment after taking the majority of what I refer to as the northern shoulder of the Donbass with the Slavyansk, and, and I'm sorry, with the, uh, uh, the, the northern part of it where, where Severodonetsk and Lysychansk were, which Russia took last week, they are basically regenerating their forces and preparing to go on to Kramatorsk and Slavyansk, which is about 15, 20 kilometers further to the east, uh, from uh, further to the west from, from those original places. And the, the active part has basically slowed down, but the artillery continues to go in uh, quite heavily. But the big change, and really the biggest news, is the, uh, the introduction of the HIMARS uh, rocket launchers given to Ukraine by the United States and some MLRS given... Uh, another rocket launcher by the UK to uh, Ukraine. And they have had really some pretty noteworthy successes in that they have taken out allegedly up to two dozen ammo depots in the far rear of the Russian area of their artillery ammo, which is so mm. important because if they knock that out, then there's a lot less artillery that can fall on the Ukrainians. Uh, that is a temporary situation which Russia will address and, and probably fix by dispersing their image or their, their dumps. But it is quite noteworthy and something that uh, we're going to be keeping a lot uh, more of a watch on. Is it your sense that, it, like, is the country being systematically, like, leveled from, from, from west, from east to west as, as the Russian forces advance? Because you see, you know, you see photos and things of life being somewhat normal in some parts of Ukraine. And it, I think it's just hard for the average American to get a sense of even, you know, the, the, is the whole country being destroyed? Is the fighting very much confined to just this one part of, of the country? You know, what is, the, what is your analysis of that? Yeah, well, what happened in, in the, the first phase, Russia thought they were going to just kind of basically come in and demonstrate this large armored force and drive down roads. And they thought they were going to scare the Ukrainians into submission and they were going to give up. And instead, they suffered egregious casualties and destruction of their forces because they they basically used none of the standard uh, modern military tactics to to protect your force. And they paid a, a huge price for that. Now, then they have said, OK, we're not going to risk our troops like that anymore. And they completely moved the force back over to the far east uh, in the Donbass area. And they uh, are operating on a new tactic now which is lead heavily with firepower, artillery, rockets, and uh, airstrikes. And yes, just as you suggested, in their areas, they are maximizing the use of firepower and leveling anything in front of them, which they've done in Mariupol, Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, and in quite a number of other cities that's smaller around the area. And they just methodically move forward, uh, just destroying all of the Ukrainian troops as well as the cities. And now then they're getting ready to move to the next uh, target set in that. So my understanding is that the weapons that Iran will be providing are largely unmanned aerial vehicles, namely weapons capable drones. Can you talk about the strategic significance of, uh, you know, Russia increasing its ability to use drone warfare? 
Yeah, you know, this is actually one of the, the biggest surprises that I had uh, at the outset of the war, because given how drone technology had been developing over the years prior to the onset of this war, uh, my expectation was that Russia was, you know, at the, following that trend and was at the forefront of it. But apparently they did not put enough uh, focus on their own drone capacity, whether in development or production. And so when the war kicked off, they were kind of behind the eight balls, so to speak. Uh, but now then they recognize, you know, because even Ukraine has had some success with the Turkish Bakhtiar 2 drone. Uh, but now then those are not quite as stealthy and the Russians have been pretty good at shooting those down. The versions from Iran, on the other hand, uh, they have really been uh, elevating theirs uh, since really 2002 and forward. And beginning in about 2015, 2018 time frame, they become even more sophisticated. And you may recall that in uh, September 2019, uh, uh, allegedly Iran-backed Houthi rebels attacked uh, an Aramco oil facility in, in Saudi Arabia with precision pinpoints targeting that none of the air defenses could knock out, and that changed the course of that war. And so I suspect that this is the kind of drone that Russia is going to want here because it's it can go through any air defenses, and it has pinpoint accuracy. And if they get hundreds of those things, that could uh, have a big negative impact on the Ukrainian war effort as well. Well, do you expect that to be met with more escalation in terms of weapons and, and economic support sent to Ukraine from the United States? And if so, when does this uh, arms race end? Yeah, that, that, that is the I mean, th this is what you're seeing already, because we amped up with the HIMARS because that elevated categorically to a new weapon system caliber. And then now then you see Russia meeting that with, you know, they're getting external support also on a sophisticated level. And as each of these has its, its impact on the other, they will both seek to continually to give themselves an additional advantage. And yes, the escalation part uh, and the potential for expanding the war is has been my concern, as I've said on your network many times since the very beginning, and remains so now, because none of these things actually reach towards an ultimate settlement of the war. They don't, they're not going to end it, but they will increase the killing and the destruction and expand the war. Yeah, and Jake Sullivan said yesterday, I believe it was Jake Sullivan, speaking for the Biden administration, that uh, this will go on, the U.S. support for Ukraine will go on for as long as it takes. That was the literal uh, phrase they used. I, I discussed it earlier in the program. Uh, if, if we're going to aid them as long as it takes, and, as, and, and it might take either forever or it might just not be possible uh, to, to have Ukraine win, you know, barring a much more significant U.S. involvement, perhaps, you know, the, the end of the cloak and dagger phase, the fa a phase where we're just directly, the U.S. is directly confronting um, uh, Russia, is, is that, which is, could be a catastrophic, you know, catastrophic nuclear kind of situation, but is that really what it would take, you know, for Ukraine to truly knock Russia out of its country? Because it, it seems doubtful, increasingly doubtful, that they could do that without, without a lot more help um, is, is, I, is, I think, what we're seeing. Yeah, you know, the, the, the truth is, which I wrote in, recently in the uh, National Security uh, Organization 1945, uh, there is no rational military path for Ukraine to win. I mean, th these things are, are basically this, like the HIMARS and some of these other uh, support we've given them uh, is going to increase the cost to Russia in their advance, but it's not even going to stop the advance, much less allow them to have a, an offensive, which they're talking about as early as next month, which doesn't make any military sense because they don't have the forces 
to be able to do that. So all these things do is to continue ramping up the cost both to Ukraine and to the West and the United States in particular. Specifically to your point there, I mean, the question is, how long can the United States go on? I mean, we can't continue to provide all of the logistic support, uh, the rockets, the maintenance capability, and the launchers themselves in, indefinitely. I mean, that starts to get into our own inventory and affect our own national security by weakening our conventional mm. capacity. And look, at you see that the, with a lot of these economic indicators coming up even later this, uh, this summer in the United States and the West, uh, it's going to become increasingly difficult for Americans to understand why we're giving billions of, of dollars every month when our own economy is starting to, to, to uh, you know, have problems. And I'm not sure that that's something we can sustain over the long term. Hmm. That's, that's interesting. I, so by, by giving them so many weapons, there would come a point where we're really depleting our own stockpile. And, you know, we don't have an obviously we don't have an overflowing or an infinite supply of these things. But th that would be a real possibility at some point. Well, yeah, because, look, we're, we're not at war, so we don't have a wartime industrial capacity right now. But you're, the, the Ukrainian people are asking us to just give them this nonstop supply of artillery rounds, of rockets, of all the support that we're giving them in all these other categories. And that's depleting our stocks because we don't have, the, you know, the rapid and expanded production capacity to replace those. That's something that very few people are talking about, but over time and probably not too many more months, that's going to start to become a real issue. Mm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis. We appreciate it. Always my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Stick around. Team Rising will join us next. First Lady Jill Biden is facing accusations of racial stereotyping for comments she made while speaking at a Latino outreach event yesterday. Let's watch. But we can't get those things on our own. Raul helped build this organization with the understanding that the diversity of this community, as distinct as the Bogodas of the Bronx, as beautiful as the blossoms of Miami, and as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio. Stand by. <laughs> is your strength. In response to the First Lady's comments, the National Association of Hispanic Journalists tweeted, quote, NAHJ encourages Flutus and her communications team to take time to better understand the complexities of our people and communities. We are not tacos. A spokesperson for Jill Biden tweeted, the first lady apologizes that her words conveyed anything but pure admiration and love for the Latino community. This latest snafu comes just a day after new polling from the New York Times and Santa College reveals that among Hispanics, President Biden's job approval rating has sunk to 32 percent, down 31 points since the start of his presidency. That's comparable to his performance among whites. In that same survey, 39% of Hispanic respondents said that if the 2024 presidential election were held today, they would vote for former President Donald Trump. That's compared to only 42% who said they'd vote to reelect Biden. No bueno. Joining us to weigh in is our rising panel. Colin Rojero is a Democratic strategist and Abraham Enriquez is president of Bienvenido. Welcome to you both. So, Colin, I'll start with you. Uh, what is uh, going on? Did you think this was as disastrous 
as it was uh, perceived, or do you think people are making something out of nothing? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both, to be 100% honest about this. I think people are making a, a, a little bit of a bigger deal than they should be. Uh, and they've taken a lot of what she said literally out of context. She started the conversation by saying the diversity of the community, right? But I think, look, this represents a problem that exists in all organizations, right wing, left wing, and often at the corporate level, that there are not enough Latinos in the rooms in any of these places. We're not represented in an equal number to what we represent in society, in positions of leadership, and all, throughout all of every organization that exists in this country, and that's a problem. And if you have us in the room, we'll be much better at giving you guidance on what is culturally appropriate and what is not. Now, I understand what she was trying to do, but using a food reference to represent the Latino community, because look, we all eat different kinds of foods, even if we're caribeños, like we all eat different things. And so I, I think it's a fraught with potential error anytime using food as a reference, especially tacos. Yeah, Colin, I agree with you that this does seem to be about something bigger than this one incident. Now, I take your point that having more Latinos in the room might help, but I gotta say, from my own perspective of often being the black person in the room, it's a, it's a heavy burden to bear being asked, like, is this going to offend the black community at large? I don't know, there's diversity among it. And I think part of the problem is this kind of essentialization that happens in these spaces where one person's view is meant to um, you know, reflect the broader community, where communities are seen, you know, ra racial groups are seen in these kind of vague community terms that can be typified by this bodega or that food item and all of these other kinds of things. And that, that kind of reductive way of looking at communities is exactly why so many people are turned off by this kind of Democratic Party politics that seems to emphasize kind of group identity over anything substantive. And, you know, folks have made the point that this is a, a corporate sponsored event. You know, they're, they're here talking about, in some ways, it seems, these superficial aspects of, you know, a, a, you know, a, a diverse ethnic group because they are not being asked to talk about more pointed, specific, largely economic priorities that people who constitute that group actually are interested in. I mean, what do you make of this, Abraham? Well, I actually agree with Colin on the representation part. I think what, what First Lady Joe Biden said yesterday just gives us a small glimpse uh, into what how she and her husband and, and pretty much this White House, how they view uh, Latinos. Uh, but it's also important that representation is not it's not just about having a certain type of Hispanic in the room. Uh, South Hispanics in South Florida probably view things a little differently than uh, Mexican-Americans in South Texas or Central Arizona or California. I mean, you know, you have Cubans, Venezuelan, Puerto Ricanos, Ecuador, Guatemala, Mexico. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, but I think the, the important thing here is that uh, the Latino vote is primarily independent. For the most part, Latinos really don't belong to a political party. Uh, and you're coming off an election season where a lot of Latinos feel really outcasted by both parties. Um, and so this was a really great opportunity for the first lady to foster uh, and grow a relationship with a lot of these independent voters. And in fact, her rhetoric is, you know, seemed to highlight what a lot of Latinos feel about the Democrat Party, is that this Democrat Party isn't for Latinos. And you see that when she references uh, the Latinos, all that we're really good for our bodega workers and taco eaters, uh, and not emphasize the fact that we can be teachers, doctors, attorneys. In the case of Myra Flores in South Texas, congressmen and congresswomen. Uh, so I think this is a big problem 
uh, when in fact it, it could be solved with a simple uh, representation of the White House, getting more Hispanics out there, getting Hispanics of different cultural backgrounds to really advise and, and counsel the president and White House staff. Colin, what do you think explains the Democratic Party's sudden or maybe not so sudden uh, massive difficulties that it's having with Latino voters? Yeah, I think that tracks along with the president's approval rating, right? Mm. I, I don't think you're seeing anything that's kind of an outlier there. Uh, along with approval rating, so goes the vote. And it's not really any different than what you see the general public. And I would say one of the interesting notes there is even with a historically low presidential rating, which, look, if if there was if Joe Biden didn't have bad luck, he might not have any luck at all, considering all the things that he's had to face in the early days of his presidency. You know, he's still beating Donald Trump. So head to head, we're still winning. And, and I think it's important to note that, look, this might be the most diverse White House from a Latino's perspective that has ever existed. There's more Latinos in this White House than have ever been represented in an administration before. So they are making concerted efforts. There's also more elected Latino Democrats than there are Republicans. So, I mean, I think there is a diversity issue on both sides in terms of representation. But one party has been far more accepting of the Latino community from the beginning than, than the other. And, and I think that doesn't mean that both parties shouldn't be making outreach. They absolutely should. Right. And there should be more people representative in the room. And to your point, not one, but most. Yeah, I, I got to say, I mean, you're, it's difficult for me to swallow. I, I relate. But look, at the end of the day, there is, you, you have the most diverse cabinet. The Democrats will sing the song all day and night about how this is the most representative cabinet that's ever existed, the most representative administration that ever existed. And it, it seems to me that you have two issues going on here. One is that oftentimes the people who are from the historically marginalized group aren't necessarily themselves part of uh, the economic class that many people in historically economic groups are in and don't actually ec represent them on that basis. The basis on which they tend to represent them are these kind of virtue signaling moments where they say, oh, you know, like tacos, <laughs> you know, like they, 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 it's superficial because the representation itself is superficial. And what, I, what I've noticed, for example, as a black person in the 2019, 2020 cycle is there are there are like signifiers that clearly some memo went out and everyone is like, this is what you say to make black people happy. And one of the things that you were supposed to say is to talk about the maternal mortality uh, gap. Now, maternal mortality rates for black women it, it are high and it's bad. But when everybody who never before that moment seems to focus in on one policy and say it in every speech, it, what it starts to feel like is like some black interest group told you that this is what people cared about. And so everyone just peppers it in their speech. And I saw the same thing happen with Latino voters. The memo went out in 2019, 2020 to say, oh, recognize there's, that there's diversity among Latino voters. Recognize that they're not just one group, that there's a plurality of different kinds of people from different kinds of places. And saying that makes you look like you are in well, touch with Latino voters. Yeah, and, so they're all saying that. Well, and speaking of that, speaking of using the right language, uh, right, the, 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 this event was called Latinx Luncheon with an additional X in the middle of it. Uh, and th this is a memo that went out, right, to use the, the X kind of language. I, that, I think that's a memo that, that went out not because even it was asked for by many Latino people. We, I've seen the polling on how many people in the Latino community respond to that kind of language, and it's like single digits. Um, Abraham, you know, what do you think about this new kind of the Latinx debate and, and how that's, I think it's emblematic of a kind of messaging problem the Democrats have and, and maybe don't even, or the, the media or the elite media type people, a problem they have that they don't even realize they have. Hmm. 
Well, exactly. And I think that's that was the very first problem uh, in this situation. The first lady going to a luncheon uh, where conservative Hispanics weren't welcome. I mean, anything to do with Latinx is uh, really isolating to that independent conservative uh, Hispanic voter. Less than 2% of Latinos actually identify uh, with uh, the Latinx term. But listen, we can talk about representation. We're talk- the entire White House could be f- filled with Latino staffers, advisors, and counselors to the president. Uh, but, but that really doesn't matter. I think policies uh, matter matter the most. And when you look at uh, this administration, when you look at President Biden uh, talking about the Latino vote, you know, Democrats and this president want to want to force the idea that Latinos, we care about climate change. We care about gender pronouns. We care about open border policies. Uh, when in reality, you go down into Latino communities and uh, economic opportunity, uh, education and security are the top issues. And we're not seeing much of those policy points or really those conversations coming from the White House. Uh, and then you, on top of that, you get the first lady going to a pretty exclusive uh, organization and, and a rally for Latinos that are really only satisfying progressive Latinos. Well, it's kind of like uh, Jill Biden really is the biggest Hispanic recruiter for the GOP at this point. Uh, and, and so I think it, it it's far more than just a messaging problem. Uh, it really is uh, the idea that, that the president and the first lady aren't surrounding themselves uh, with Latino voters um, from all from all you know perspective uh, rooms of the aisle, which when President Biden first came to office, he said he was going to you know, bring the nation together. And there isn't much of, of bipartisan communication with Latino voters uh, with this White House. Colin, want to give you uh, the last word. You know, what do you think about the Latinx designation? Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, to speak to what Brianna said, like, this was an, an, this is an incredibly bad term that's made up not by Latinos, to be clear. And anytime that anyone receives that particular memo, they should put it in the trash. Mm. You cannot use that term in our language. You cannot use that in Spanish. So it's not a term that applies. Let's get rid of it. This is a message to everyone. Latinx should no longer exist. It should not be part of our lexicon. It should definitely not be part of the lexicon when you're trying to communicate political policy or anything to do with politics politics and leadership to the Latino community. It's not what we use as a term in the community. But I would say, you know, look, there is a there is a difference between be, between being in the room and being at the table. So uh, mm-hmm. is is a is the are the rep, Latinos in the administration or in any organization actually able to have decision making power? And that's a big question. And I think that that is one that if we do not address it, we'll continue to run into uh, some cultural faux pas that exist and worse. And, uh, and it's a problem that we have to solve throughout the entirety of the country. Well, Colin and Abraham, thank you so much for joining us. This was a great discussion. Thank you. And we'll be back with more Rising uh, right after this. Stay with us. Former CNN anchor Chris Cuomo has resurfaced. They let him out of the basement, and now he's in Ukraine, actually. The Cuomo brother is the latest celebrity politico to touch down in the war-torn country and is posting videos to his Instagram account. There was this on Monday. So it's video of a Ukrainian village destroyed by bombings and Ukrainian troops taking cover. More that you can see here and saying that America should be paying a lot more attention. 
probably what he means is a lot more attention to him. Um, yeah, I had blessedly kind of forgotten about him. Um, and all uh, I saw you take one of the endless activities. Right. Yeah. Um, and it, it's hard to perceive this. Again, I don't want to cast aspersions. Maybe he has a sincere commitment to doing the kind of rigorous reporting in Ukraine that he feels like is not being done. However, it's hard to read him popping up like this in this moment as anything other than an effort to rehabilitate himself after having been let go for violating journalistic standards over the coverage of his brother's own sexual assault and COVID scandal in New York. Right. Let's just, let's all take a minute to recall what that was. Right. Chris Cuomo, important anchor for CNN, uh, did, uh, was allowed to do wrongly this kind of banter with his brother, the former governor, the current at the time governor of New York, who is complicit in this, uh, who's responsible for the nursing home deaths, uh, and, and then had all these sexual misconduct accusations. Uh, Chris Cuomo also had some some kinds of sexual misconduct accusations, and then there's some possibility that they couldn't do anything with him because then he had knowledge about Jeff Zucker, the president of CNN, who was in this relationship, someone else at CNN. It's such a mess. Uh, but anyway, Chris Cuomo was a, just a terrible, I mean, he was always a terrible journalist, terrible host. So he's gone now, and he's gone to, to Ukraine. Uh, he, should, he should hook up with... Uh, Malcolm Nance, Malcolm Nance. Uh, who was my other favorite <laughs> celebrity resistance pundit type person who also went to uh, went to Ukraine. I don't know. You think they're just hoping that we all forget? Because, I, you know, in the Post article talking about this, they mentioned that he was maybe teasing a rebrand about an independent journalistic effort. I don't know that in a world where people are so frustrated with CNN as an institution, the mainstream media as an institution, people are looking for legitimately independent news outlets that have not let them down and demonstrated a kind of um, corruption that is endemic to the Cuomo family, apparently, that anyone's really looking for him to be the vanguard of a new independent media outlet. I mean, I never understood someone like him anyway because he just he didn't have any talent he didn't have any journalistic <laughs> way instincts. he didn't wait, wait, i mean that's not something i'm going to say about every like like uh you know even if you you might disagree with jake tapper or, or anderson you, you Cooper, something, they're he good and, he and don lemon didn't have a little charisma there that so you appreciate dumb. so dumb yeah you didn't like a little boys club routine no you weren't no. charmed by it he was <laughs> clueless about the first amendment uh i remember writing about very early in my career at reason so it was like seven or eight years ago, some, something he said that was just so ignorant on the subject of like hate speech being criminalized or mm -hmm. something. There's been a lot of things like that over mm -hmm. the years where he's not just someone I disagree with, mm -hmm. but like someone who seems actively ignorant Fair about, uh, about many of the issues. But he doesn't have a TV show anymore, so he can't hit back at me. So maybe this is punching, maybe this <laughs> maybe is punching, punching down, down. <laughs> to, uh, to treat him uh, like this. But, uh, or maybe he'll, he'll have some on the ground uh, reporting show from... Ukraine. He's getting into this a little bit late, though, because I think the the American the attitudes have shifted. People aren't even moved. that. I mean, and we'll see with the gas prices and all of the things. We'll see how much you know. There's even like the lib cohort is that invested in this conflict going forward. And look, I take your point. Back to January sixth for the for the, for the lib cohort. Yeah. Well. I, I do think, frankly, that there's more of a, a there there in terms of something for the Biden administration to get something out of us compared mm -hmm. to the war in Ukraine, not to reduce all of these like really real world conflicts down to those kind of base political instincts. I will say it'll be interesting to see what happens to him outside of the 
the, the funding and support that comes from a CNN type organization. You know, when he was at CNN, he had the resources for a giant Q-tip prop that made That's for one right. of his most memorable That's moments right. as he faux swabbed his brother's nose oh, with a with a Q-tip the size of something from American Gladiators. Cringe. And, and what what is he without uh, that kind without of technical support? Yeah. <laughs> prop support. Probably, <laughs> probably it's even less appealing television. But I guess we'll I guess we'll have to find out. Re I'm, regrettably. So he was remember he was trapped in the basement earlier because he had COVID and Correct. he was one of the he was probably one of the on the early side of mm -hmm. like public figures, known figures having COVID, mm -hmm. you know, way before vaccines, still kind of, you know, scary time mm -hmm. and, and was quarantined, uh, quarantined in his basement. And I think continued to do the show. Yeah, reported from his basement. Yeah. That was an, another kind of intrepid from the field study. I think maybe that's where he got his uh, taste for it in the first place. Oh, fun sorry. stuff. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's just so silly. It's silly. And it does, look, Again, if there, if he just happens to have a real burning desire in his heart to do a journalism in Ukraine because there's not enough people with their eyes on the prize, you know, God bless him. But the optics he's of this not for qualified this, even to do it's, it. He's not qualified for this to come before any kind of meaningful apology. Like I understand if you want to do your little apology tour and you know talk about the people you victimized and show some demonstration that you've understood what you've done wrong and then go to Ukraine. Fine, but this just feels like a distraction. This just feels like a dodge, and maybe I'll be proved, proved wrong. Yeah, but it is funny. It's very funny. <laughs> it's funny. All right, well, we enjoyed talking about that, and we'll have more discussion soon. Stay tuned. A local Indiana newspaper reported last week that a 10-year-old rape victim was denied abortion access in Ohio just three days after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which forced her to seek care outside of the state. Now, this story instantly went viral online, and it actually made its way all the way to the White House. Just last week, it was reported that a 10-year-old girl was a rape victim in Ohio, 10 years old. And she was forced to have to travel out of the state to Indiana to seek to terminate the presidency and maybe save her life. That's last part is my judgment. Ten years old. Ten years old. Raped, six weeks pregnant, already traumatized, was forced to travel to another state. Imagine being that little girl. Just, I'm, I'm serious, just imagine being that little girl. Ten years old. A recent analysis, however, from the Washington Post now calls into question details of the Indianapolis Star's reporting, considering only one source is attributed for the story, abortion doctor Caitlin Bernard. According to the Washington Post, it's not evident that the Star made any kind of fact check on Bernard's account. We want to get into what else is fishy about the reporting with culture editor at The Federalist and co-host of Rising Fridays, Emily Jashinsky. She joins us now. Welcome, Italy. Uh, Emily. What's going on right now? Italy. <laughs> Sorry, I just got back from France. I'm feeling very cosmopolitan today. <laughs> it, was, it was sort of like a, a Biden moment because did you hear in the clip where Biden, he's like in this, he's in the zone. He's he's like giving this very impassioned speech and says, terminate the presidency. I heard that. I I heard it. Yikes. Yikes. But, but look, in all seriousness, what's going on with this story? How did this manage to get all the way to the White House with so little fact checking? 
You know, that's one of the things that, in a sense, it's a great illustration of what happens because this came out of the Indie Star, which is a very reputable major newspaper. It's not, you know, the local paper or whatever. It's the Indie Star. Um, and so the White House said they took that report and because it was in the paper, that's how it ended up snowballing into this major story. But I think uh, Philip Wegman, when he had his question at the briefing last week and asked, have you made any attempts to contact this victim? And the White House said, no, they, have no, they had no answer to that question. It gets to, you know, how real did anybody think the story is? And, and to be very clear, there are two different conversations. One, there's a conversation about uh, whether the story is representative of something very serious that is going to happen in the post-Roe landscape. And the second element of it, though, is how did this get printed? And the, the thing that's shocking, if you look at it, is there's a single source, one source. That source in and of herself uh, is an abortion provider. Um, I don't know if she's a doctor, but she's, I think she is an abortion doctor. She's all over the media. She's constantly talking to the press. She works with Planned Parenthood. Um, and I believe she's currently in a lawsuit against the state of Indiana. So you have the, the interests of her right there. And also the paper doesn't seem to have checked with law enforcement. Um, and that's one of those things that a reader or the White mm -hmm. House should assume that the paper did. Uh, the AG just told Fox News last night that there's literally no record of this happening. Uh, there is no record, according to both states, of whether this has ever happened in the state. And there would be um, if something like this had, it almost certainly would be if something like this had actually happened. So the newspaper should have done it. Um, then the White House should have done it. But you can see you're supposed to be able to trust the newspaper to have already done the due diligence. So I, I actually understand how that happened. Well, right. It, so this is a this is an interesting journalism issue where because they did, it's, it's not the biggest screw up ever because they did. Uh, Caitlin Bernard, the the, the abortion doctor, the or gynecologist, or whatever kind of medical doctor she is, she is on the record. So she did. This it's not anonymously sourced. She said, but but what she said in the story is that I heard of this happening from someone else. So she did not. Uh, have any interaction with the alleged 10-year-old, but she heard from another, so this is according to the Washington Post fact check of it, that uh, that Kaylin Bernard, who performs abortions, received a call from a child abuse doctor in Ohio who had a 10-year-old patient who was six weeks and three days pregnant. So she says she heard it from someone else. Given that that is the and then is, she's the only source. So she is named, but she doesn't have any knowledge of this. She doesn't have a direct, it's, a, it's already at her level, yeah. it's not a primary source, yeah. it's secondary source. So I think given that being the reality, it was on them to check it additionally, which as you said, they clearly didn't do. And then the, now the Washington Post tried to verify that this, the 10 year old exists and couldn't do it. And they made significant effort to try to find the person. They contacted law enforcement, they contacted clinics, they could not produce this person. So this I, wasn't also part of the story that when you have a minor who's pregnant, there are certain reporting guidelines that the doctors have to take because they were obviously raped, it's statutory rape, and then they have to then go and, and provoke the follow-up investigation from a legal perspective, right? And that's part of why it was so suspicious, why there's no crumbs here that mm -hmm. leads back to the victim. And I will say, look, I understand kind of relying on a news report from a reputable paper from the perspective of the White House, I kind of understand, or from the perspective of others who were talking about the story, uh, taking it at face value. But there does also seem to me to be something a little bit 
untoward about the White House using this story rhetorically to make a point about abortion without caring enough about the victim to have investigated, That's to even try to help point. her. That's a great point. Right? Like, if this is really this terrible thing, which if it were true or is true, it is obviously a horrible thing, right. and you have the power of the presidency, wouldn't you have wanted to reach out to give aid and intervene on this child's behalf? Yeah. That should have triggered the knowledge that this may not have been a legitimate story. I think that's why Philip's question was so smart, because that's the real way to get at this. I mean, how sincere is this concern if you are not going to check in and see what happened? I mean, even, to, of course, try to check in with the individual, check in with the state, mm. uh, check in with law enforcement. Have they provided resources? Is everybody okay? I mean, the White House has staff to do that. Um, and you'd think that they would if the story was more than just a point in a speech to them. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily on the president. Although you'd think if he reads something like that, he, as the president, he would immediately marshal resources to help deal with it. Um, but speech writers, everyone, nobody thought so I think that's a, another extremely important point of this. Um, but it does get to like, you cannot trust newspapers right now. Like this mm. is an old school newspaper. They did not do the basic due diligence. And this one got caught because it turned into a really high profile thing when the White House used it. But they did not do the basic due diligence. They, they you know, local news has been hurt so much by mm -hmm. technological changes. They don't have the layers of editorial control and fact checking that they used to. But even as a, like, even as a reporter, even if you reported and edited and published this story yourself, you would check in with law enforcement. Well, it is obvious. To that point, I want to read the last paragraph of this Washington Post fact check, which again was a, a good and worthy fact check because they, they tried to corroborate and then were honest about the fact that they really couldn't. But then the, the, so the Washington Post article ends with this. This is a, the bottom line. This is a very difficult story to check. Bernard is on the record, but obtaining documents or other confirmation is all but impossible without details that would identify the locality where the rape occurred. And then here's the weird part. With news reports around the globe and now a presidential imprimatur, however, the story has acquired the status of a fact, no matter its provenance. If a rapist is ever charged, the fact finally would have more solid grounding. How... What? What, what on earth did they mean by that? That it's a fact because people have said it was a fact? That's I think what he's tr trying to weird. get to is the way that like media and social media creates. Nobody reads the correction, right? So like even if there was a correction on this story, it has gone around the world um, a million times, and average readers don't have the time that we do to consume every little tidbit of news on Twitter. Um, and so they see the original story for the most part. And sometimes, you know, if they pay attention to conservative media or alternative media, watch shows like this, they find out that it was wrong. But otherwise, people see something, they hear something horrible from the president it's a, it's excerpted on the nightly news and they really believe it um and, and that's a incredible disservice to the people that you work for um if you're a journalist you work for your news consumers you work for your readers and it, it is just a, an awful lack of standards to respect them enough um, to do the due diligence mm. yeah we saw this with the the haitian whip story at the border i mean there are people yes. who still talk about the whipping and what really frustrates me as a leftist is that oftentimes the underlying thing described is bad without the embellishment. There's already plenty of true bad things that you could be talking about all the time. But when you do things like this, it really undermines your case. So I would just caution folks on both sides of the aisle. Obviously, there's a lot of people who believe a lot of facts that are incorrect about the 
Trump, you know, in the election and who stole what and all of this other kind of thing. Like this is happening everywhere. And so I understand the impulse for information czars and everything. But what people like Glenn Greenwald have been pushing back against is that it is not a partisan issue. Mm -hmm. These kinds of stories happen misleading good faith news consumers on both sides of the aisle all the time. And it really puts us in a difficult position to trust each other and have good faith conversations going forward. But, you know, thank you so much, Emily, for joining us today. Of course, that was I, very well said. Agree with every word. <laughs> <laughs> and we will have more rising for you after this. A progressive group is planning to launch a public pressure campaign to block President Joe Biden's renomination in 2024. The effort, which is being led by Roots Action, is the same group that worked in 2020 to persuade progressives to support Joe Biden. Roots Actions has plans to spend six figures on a hashtag Don't Run Joe campaign with digital ads starting in early no nominating states on November 9th. Don't Run Joe. Uh, interesting. I, I love to see it. Look, it's remarkable yeah. to me that the conversation right now that we're having about Joe Biden, whether or not his age and mental fitness is a concern, all of the teleprompter gaffes, which I have some empathy for in this professional capacity, but have really gone off the rails of late. The substantive issues with him being unwilling to use his executive authority, no matter how dire the situation is for Democrats and these key issues like abortion. It's, it's really interesting to me that we are only just now having the conversation publicly in the Democratic Party that the left has been having since 2020. This is a group that apparently was advocating for progressives to vote for Biden in 2020. Wouldn't have been my take, but here we are. They finally have figured out that there's a such thing called leverage and maybe they should use it to get a candidate on the ballot who is not going to damn us. It's not going to damn the Democrats to a loss to a, a Donald Trump or a Ron DeSantis. Look at these polls. I am looking at the polls. So my difficulty, though, is is in imagining that even if we could somehow have Biden not be the candidate in 2024, which seems already like a... 2% chance, mm -hmm. in, in my view. He, so he's not going to be defeated in like a primary. That is just not going to happen. Even he would polls, have to decide not to run. He would have to decide not to run. I mean, the only the, the most recent precedent for this is right, like 1968, uh, of, a, of a, a, a sitting president not being able to be the nominee of his party because of his unpopularity. We're, we're going back to a different political era. It would be so unprecedented in the modern time. I guess it's not impossible. It is very hard for me to imagine. 64% of Democrats want right. someone other than Joe Biden to be the nominee. I understand it's going to be an uphill battle. I understand that whoever were to replace him would lose the power of the incumbency and all of the advantages that are built in, and that Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis both would be formidable adversaries. However, does Biden stand a chance at all with 64% of his own party not wanting him to run? I mean, he, he stands a chance against Donald Trump is what we is what the polling seems to suggest. And he could say he is the man who defeated Donald Trump. Yeah, but that was before. And this yeah, is now. Before. And to many Americans, the, the, the fact of the matter is that Donald Trump, under Donald Trump, we got stimulus checks, paused student debt relief. And, you know, under Joe Biden, we saw a reneging on the promise of the $2,000 checks. He's constantly threatening to end the student debt moratorium. You know, they, we have high inflation and high gas prices, which are being attributed to him, rightly or wrongly. We have a war in Ukraine. And for many people, even if they were willing to vote for Joe Biden because it seemed like 
Donald Trump needed to be stopped. Now, with time passing, Donald Trump's in the rearview mirror. He's not on Twitter anymore antagonizing people. I think a lot of folks are going to be either disgruntled enough to stay at home or, frankly, not as terrified about the prospect of a Joe Biden candidacy, presidency. Well, I can absolutely— oh, sorry, Donald Trump presidency. Right, which is why he's going to have a—this is going to—he's going to have a hard time— uh, being reelected in a general, I think in either case, uh, he's certainly, Don I think Donald Trump is a more favorable matchup for, for Joe Biden. I think the Ron DeSantis matchup can basically like christen President DeSantis at this point. But so I understand the, the impulse to want to swap him with someone else. It's, but there is no obvious other person. There's no one. You're, I mean, you're talking, you're well, not wrong to focus is. on the issues, but for so many, it's pers people, it's personality based. And I don't think there is someone as unpopular as Joe Biden is, who is the more popular figure? It's, I, I don't like this, and I want the leftists watching me to understand that I'm saying this with rising bile in my throat. <laughs> but I, I think that the reason that there is all of this robust conversation now about an alternative to Biden is because people are coalescing around Pete. Oh. I think it's Pete. You saw this glowing praise he got for saying some pretty that. basic anodyne. Very like, a basic good response, things. But like, that's what you should expect baseline from a member of your administration and responding to a question, line of question like that on Fox News. He was responding as uh, for people who didn't watch the uh, sec uh, sec uh, transportation secretary to some questions about um, uh, airline travel and the like. He did. He gave good answers. But, but now people are really willing to coordinate him as president. I think that they're open to having a conversation about not running Joe Biden mm. in part because he's staging a so I, I am not a leftist, so I don't have any like knee jerk like def default opposition to Pete Buttigieg. Um, so I'm just looking at his actual record as transportation secretary. He seems to be presiding over the most like <laughs> screwed up. Like awful, I, I, I want to just like throw out words I'm not allowed to say. On like it is so <laughs> messed up how air travel is right now. I'm not. That's not all his fault, but he doesn't seem to be. He actually doesn't seem to be handling it very substantively well at all. Um, his answer right to that tweet or whatever he got called out for it was fine, but he he is not doing a good. Things are bad right now. Like air travel is more messed up than it has ever been since 9-11. Right. And he's in charge of it right now. So I, it's, fa it's crazy to me. Maybe, it's, maybe Democrats are just like this. Like, yeah, who, how can we make things worse for ourselves? Yes, okay, let's look, put forward is, is the worse? guy presiding over a massive disaster right now. But at the end of the day, it's Joe Biden's administration, and I'm not yeah. Liz Smith. But if I were uh, Pete's uh, comms director, I might say something like, look, Pete Buttigieg has worked as hard as he could and as much as he could within the authority of an administration where the buck ultimately started with Joe, stopped with Joe Biden. And if he were to mount his own campaign against Joe Biden, I would expect him to highlight and contrast what he would have done if he were not having to operate within the guardrails of the Biden administration and let Joe Biden say, well, it wasn't my fault. It was Pete's fault. And let then Pete Buttigieg say, when I served... We learned that the, the leader had to take authority ultimately for what happened. And it's disappointing to me that Joe Biden won't take authority, take, take accountability for what happened underneath his own administration and try to pass it off on other people. I won't do that when I'm president of the United States of America. Hmm. The thing about Pete Buttigieg is he is good at saying words. He's good at saying words. And to many Democrats, the technocratic Democratic Party right. who think that going to X and Y and Z school is the be all end all 
someone like Pete Buttigieg, one, does present a much more positive alternative to Joe Biden. He's younger. He's more able. He doesn't embarrass people constantly. All of those things. He's The representational value of him being the first openly gay president, all of those things I think will genuinely appeal to a lot of folks. The left is not going to be happy, but it will genuinely appeal to a lot of folks. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Well, former Obama administration alum and presidential candidate Julian Castro gave his opinion on what he expects to see of Joe Biden in 2024. Let's take a look. I don't believe that he's going to run again. I think that he's always seen himself as, as a bridge uh, to what comes next and that he'll stick to that. Are you available? Ultimately. I have no intention of running for anything. <laughs> Let's make some news here tonight. Let's make some but I don't, I don't believe that he's going to run again. Wow. He said he we're, has no we're, intention. We're, wow. So that, that was a significant remark. This is the first example, to my knowledge, of someone with some actual like, political knowledge and not just like wild speculation, but asserting that. I don't think that's true, but this is the first person with some credibility to make that claim. Well, it, it, the it seems obvious to me that the gloves are off. These are yeah. conversations that could have been happening all of this time, but just now we're having all of this media coverage on the possibility of Biden not running again, Kamala being a disaster. Remember, Castro, when he was running in the primary, was one of the few people, he and um, Booker, both made really subtle, relatively tepid comments following one of the debates during which Joe Biden did a gaffe saying, I'm not sure if he is cognitively right. or because of his age or whatever up to the task. After they each said those comments in the spin room after the debate, it was over for them. They were like, not on the debate stage again, I don't think. Their campaigns were over. There was a lot of backlash in the Democratic Party. It was clear, the message was clear, you are not allowed to impeach Joe Biden's cognitive ability. My main takeaway from those debates was how little they mattered because Biden was terrible. In, he was the worst by far in every single one, well, and, yeah. it, and, then, and he easily just marched to victory. But no, that's not exactly <laughs> true. Remember, he lost the first th four primaries right. badly, right. like fifth place badly in some right. of those contests. What saved him I mean, was the corporate Democratic Iowa, Party. still counting, I guess, but a joke, joke about it. I know that. who won Iowa, and that's why I won't be voting for Pete Buttigieg for President <laughs> Because, you know, that kind of unscrupulous behavior is not exactly what I'm looking for in a national Hopefully leader. we're allowed on YouTube to cast aspersions <laughs> on Iowa's uh, uh, caucus process. Um, I don't know if that's, yeah. uh, if that's yeah. violates any kind of YouTube but look, rule. That's, but. That's, I, just, I bring that up just to say that Castro, he fell in line during the primary when he was told to stop talking about Joe Biden. And the fact that he is so publicly talking about Joe Biden running right now suggests to me that there is a real possibility of that happening. And at very least, he's not fearful of the blowback from the Democratic Party to be openly having that conversation, which suggests to me that there is some part of the Democratic Party establishment that is not 100% behind a second Biden term. Okay, I think Castro saying it makes it like 2% likely to 3% <laughs> likely. Fair enough. But uh, it's interesting. All right, well, we'll have more rising right after this. Hi, Kim, what's on your radar? All right, well, I want to do something a little bit different today, and I want to share, share with you this Newsweek article that has been popping up whenever you do a search for Hunter Biden iCloud. This is a fact check about whether or not Google suppressed the latest Hunter Biden story. So I'm going to read from this article a little bit 
to show you, you know, what the fact checkers have to say about whether or not Google suppressed the latest Hunter Biden story. So here's the story. Fact check. Do screen grabs prove Google censored Hunter Biden iCloud leaks? Hunter Biden has provided plenty of stories which at have at points proved damaging to President Joe Biden and his family both before and after he took the White House. Despite widespread coverage from many notable media outlets, conspiratorially minded opponents of the president still insist that investigations of Hunter have not been thorough, implying a deliberate effort by mainstream institutions to protect him. Now, with rumors swirling about the president's son's past following an alleged data leak, the same type of conspiratorial narratives have reemerged, it says. The claim, here's the claim that Newsweek is going to tell us. Tweets sent in July 2020 imply that Google results about an alleged leak of data relating to Hunter Biden have been censored by the search engine. Now, here's a photo of that disclaimer. Uh, This one appeared whenever people would do a search on Google for Hunter Biden iCloud or Hunter Biden iPhone, this disclaimer would pop up and it says, it looks like these results are changing quickly. If this topic is new, it can sometimes take time for reliable sources to publish information. Check the source. Are they trusted on this topic? Come back later. Other sources might have more information on this topic in a few hours or days. That's what the disclaimer says. Now, back to this Newsweek article that's fact-checking this, and they're going to now tell us the facts. So here are the facts. Conservative pundits have regularly criticized what they view as a suppression by the big tech and the mainstream media of scandals concerning Hunter Biden. The most notable of these was the Hunter Biden laptop story. Although the story was widely investigated and parts of it have been debunked, narratives still persist that the story was covered up, it says. Okay, wait a minute here. So they're saying, no, this was this uh, narrative still persists that the story was covered up, although the story was widely investigated and parts of it have been debunked. It was covered up. We know that Twitter banned the story. You weren't able, they, they banned the New York Post, their account, weren't able to circulate the story. Mainstream media would not report on it at all. We saw no reports coming out of mainstream media. And when they would make a comment about it, about why they weren't reporting on it, they would say, we don't want to talk about Russian disinformation. That's what they were calling the story. It took 18 months before Washington Post actually came out, 18 months after the story actually broke by the New York Post. 18 months before Washington Post came out and said, actually, it looks like these emails, we were able to kind of verify some of them. Turns out they're real. That came out 18 months later. But I guess, sure, uh, the story wasn't covered up 18 months later. After a while, people were able to report on it and talk about it. It just took some time. But, it, you know, uh, so the fact checking the fact checkers here goes on to say in this in this article, Much like some of the conspiratorial narratives surrounding the laptop story, some are claiming that large multinationals like Google are suppressing the distribution of this news story. Specifically, they imply that search engines have that the search engine has thrown up a warning and censors results. The banner shared on Twitter is a relatively recent feature introduced to flag results that may or may not have been shared among a wide range of sources that may not have been shared among a wide range of sources. One of the measures introduced to combat viral misinformation. So that's why they're doing it, to combat misinformation. A Google blog post published in 2021 states that it had trained our systems to detect when a topic is rapidly evolving and a range of sources hasn't yet weighed in. Well, and then it says, uh, Google on the blog post said, we'll now show a notice indicating that it may be best to check back later when more information from a wider range of sources might be available. The Newsweek goes on to say, critically, this means the search results about Hunter Biden 
have not been censored in their entirety. In spite of claims that the story has been suppressed, some mainstream publications, including Sky News, have already reported about this and other leaks, and they rated the accusation as false. Now, this story, when you Google now Hunter Biden iCloud or Hunter Biden iPhone, the first thing that pops up is this Newsweek fact check. They want you to read this fact check first before you go on and see any other content about Hunter Biden. And notably, all of the rest of the content, all of the rest of the stories about Hunter Biden are now from these mainstream sources. Many of them, not all, most of them are still not talking about it at all. And we'll go over that. But the ones that are popping up, they're basically saying, oh, it's not true. We don't really know much about it. It looks like there's somebody in the photos that has a likeness to Hunter Biden in the photos and videos from this data dump. But, you know, which is fair. We don't really fully know. People can Photoshop things. People make things up all the time. So fair enough. But this story pops up. Now, what's also crazy is that this story pops up when you do a search on YouTube. And if you're looking for any sort of YouTube videos, then this news story, there's a disclaimer that pops up saying this has been, it's, you know, that's been debunked basically that Google is suppressing these results. And so therefore uh, you should, um, Google's not really suppressing these results. Instead, uh, you know, click on the link and it takes you to the Newsweek story. So I did a search on CNN now, you can search their website for any phrase, and I search for Hunter Biden, and you can see right here, this is displaying the results. Now, nothing on this page right now shows Hunter Biden. You've got January 6th committee holds fifth hearing, June 22nd, 2022, Russia-Ukraine news, and then underneath it, five things to know for June 22nd, primaries, gun laws, January 6th. Now, okay, maybe these stories talk about Hunter Biden inside of them. So what I did next was I then clicked on these stories, and this is what I saw. So when you do a search now inside of the story, you can see that the it is not found. I, I did a, a, an, a search inside the story for Hunter Biden's name, not found. Nothing containing Hunter Biden in this article at all. That happened over and over through all the articles that I searched on CNN that came up for Hunter Biden. So they're either not talking about Hunter Biden at all or the algorithm is suppressing whenever Hunter Biden's name is um, is searched for, the algorithm then maybe directs you into a different, a, a different direction. Notably, all of them mention Biden, President Joe Biden, but they don't mention Hunter Biden. So, so then I thought, okay, well, maybe it's just because the algorithm doesn't work for Hunter Biden. It only is taking one of the words and it's giving you the top results for that one word, which would be Biden, which makes sense. He's a president of the United States. So I did a test on it and I actually tried another well-known name that is shared by multiple people, Trump. And when I went on to CNN search and I tried for Ivanka Trump, thinking if anything, the top results would show up would be Donald Trump if that's the case. Uh, no, all the stories that popped up involved Ivanka Trump specifically. So the algorithm isn't just picking up on one word. It is picking up on both. So either CNN is not reporting anything about Hunter Biden at all, or the algorithm is just set to forget the Hunter part and just give you the Biden part. So I did the same thing on MSNBC. I wanted to see, have they said anything at all about Hunter Biden's data leak? You would think this is a big story. I mean, the president's son, the president of the United States' son has had all of his personal data dumped onto a website. This is actually a pretty big story, no matter what you think of it. So MSNBC, I do a search. What do I find? I click, I, I do a search again. I put Hunter Biden in there. Nothing I get. The only thing I get at the very first thing is Hunter Biden's ex-wife opens up about her marriage and how she learned to move on. That's the only thing that shows up on MSNBC. 
So I did this also, Washington Post, New York Times, all of the major liberal, liberal media organizations. Hunter Biden doesn't show up at all. So, you know, no matter how you slice it, this is a big story. I get it. It's not Hunter Biden's personal life, uh, what he does in his personal life. Uh, there is some merit to it when it in regards to criminality, right? There should be a discussion about that. You've got Joe Biden, a lawmaker, talking about holding people accountable for certain crimes. He spent his career doing this. His son is now committing crimes. And there's no real discussion about the criminality of it. You know that if it were Donald Trump Jr. or Ivanka Trump committing crimes, even if they're not related to the office of the presidency, people would be talking about it ad nauseum. But they're not talking about Hunter Biden at all. But really the story, even if you don't want to talk about his personal life and maybe the crimes that were committed inside of the videos and the photos that were posted, um, you've got to at least report on the fact that the president's son had been hacked and that his data and potentially sensitive information, conversations he may or may not have had with the president of the United States, you would think that that information would be newsworthy of some level. Yet mainstream media has not touched the story at all. And now you've got Newsweek saying, fact check. Uh, it turns out there was no, there's no suppression of these stories. It's all a bunch of conspiratorially minded people talking about suppression. There's no suppression here, nothing to see here. Brianna and Robbie, interested to get your take on this. I mean, you know, uh, what what is happening here? Are, are we, why are we being gaslit to the point where the fact checkers are sitting there telling us that the facts we're seeing are not facts? That was a pretty hilarious line in the Newsweek article. I pulled it up. Yeah, it's <laughs> although the story was widely investigated and parts of it have been debunked, narratives still persist that the story was covered up. I mean, it was covered up. That's like that's we inarguable that. what how social media <laughs> handled it. And the social media companies have admitted that how they handled it was wrong. They've mm -hmm. said, we regret that that was wrong. So it's it's very weird for this article to claim something that the companies themselves admit happened didn't happen. But. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the one wrinkle in this is, you know, there I think there's a reasonable conversation to be had about the news value of this. You know, the parts of it that are the most salacious are the parts that kind of don't have much to do with Joe Biden as a president, even if you might want to draw some conclusion here or there about who their relationship and who he is as a father and all these things I think are largely immaterial and private. But you cannot ignore the gap between how this is being handled and how something like the Trump P tape, which ended up not ever being substantiated, was covered breathlessly by the liberal mm -hmm. media. And here's why it matters. It matters because if you hope to restore any confidence in mainstream media, if you hope to restore any confidence that there could be any kind of central news agency that Americans across the political aisle could watch and get the same kinds of information and trust, handling stories in these biased ways is not going to get you there. And moreover, if this is in fact fake and everything's a deep fake and none of these photographs or videos are real, then that is a story too, right? That's a really important story about how someone has spent a lot of time and energy seeding the internet with deep fakes about the president's son and someone should want to investigate that too. Right. But the complete kind of silence on this issue and the difficulty in seeing anything about it outside of, you know, more conservative news sources is a problem. Yeah. I will. Well, especially the one... now that. Go, go ahead, ahead Kim. Well, now that Secret Service, haven't they come out and said that they do know of a leak and that mm. they are aware of a leak? And mm. so this is now a little bit more verified. I mean, I agree with you, Brianna, that 
in normal circumstances, I don't think that the personal life of the president's children is really truly newsworthy, although we did see that. We have seen that with the other children, right, with the Bush daughters and with Obama's daughters. They would make the news for doing things that they weren't supposed to be doing. If they were, if it was illegal, like maybe showing up to a party and they were underage, were they drinking, were they not, right? There's all these questions mm -hmm. about that. But Hunter Biden is a bit different. We do know that he had ties to his father and business dealings that involved his father, right? Because he, he needed those connections for these big companies that were paying him an enormous amount of money that he obviously was not qualified to actually be making. So there is a direct business connection with the president of the United States. And the thing is, is that I have a lot of sympathy for Joe Biden and what he's going through in regards to Hunter. I think it's very, very sad to have a family member go through addiction and to be suffering to this level. I've dealt with it in my own life. I understand it. It is horrible to have to deal with that. I have a lot of sympathy, but that sympathy scares me for him, that this, what he's feeling scares me because I know the great lengths that a parent will go to to help their child when their child is in a, such a bad situation such as Hunter Biden. And it does raise questions in my mind about whether or not Joe Biden was actually helping Hunter in any way, shape or form to get on his feet, and which any parent would want to do. That is something any parent would want. But how did he help him get on his feet? And what connections did he help make in order to help him get on his feet? Right. Those are the and questions I think that the American people deserve answers to. Right. And, and what did Hunter in his desperation and his addiction, you know, ask his dad for dad, maybe not even aware of what else Hunter has going on, I think I think are important and legitimate questions. And maybe out of sympathy felt like right. I would do anything to help my child. And I think any parent would feel that way. I think this is a major weak spot for Joe Biden. And it's a weak spot that I think could be a matter of national security. I think it's fair for people to ask that question. Well, thank you, Kim. We'll have more rising in just a minute. Stay tuned. Tennis star Novak Djokovic won his fourth straight title at Wimbledon over the weekend, but said he has no plans to get vaccinated in order to bypass restrictions to enter the United States for the U.S. Open in August. Let's watch. Novak Frank from L'Equipe. Uh, which good news are you waiting exactly from uh, U.S. Open? Exemption or? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not vaccinated and I'm not planning to get vaccinated, so the only good news I can have is them removing the mandate, mandated green vaccine card or whatever you call it to, to enter United States or exemption. It's or yeah, I, I don't know what I, I don't think exemption is realistically possible or uh, if that is possibility, I don't know what exemption would be about. So I, I don't know that I don't have much chances there. I think it's just whether or not they, they remove this in time for me to get to, to USA. Right. Oh my God! It's so stupid. <laughs> so look, the the exemption which part, would be which no. Part it's stupid, stupid to have to require him to get vaccinated in order to participate in this. It's so stupid. Well, every right in order to enter the country, if you're not a citizen of the United States, right. you have to be vaccinated still in order to get in. Right. Uh, those, so those policies have no real basis in you know the rationale that. You need originally, right, was, well, we, we want people to be vaccinated so that they're less likely to spread the disease because we're trying to manage to keep the disease under control. But we're not, A, we're not, the disease is not like coming into this country from other, like it's already here. Uh, right. B, the idea that the vaccine or vaccinated people are, have some significant uh, reduction in likelihood of transmitting is also no longer true, if it was ever true. 
So it's really just for the, the vaccinated person's health that you'd want them to be vaccinated, or the, for the person who gets the vaccine. And if he, you know, determines in his judgment or, you know, consultation with his doctor that he, he doesn't want to get vaccinated, he's a very, very physically fit, in good shape person. He's not in any high-risk category. It should be his choice anyway, but it's just there's no, there's clearly no public health rationale in having this requirement. Yeah, in some ways the exemptions kind of prove the point that you're making. So the fact that the exemption that he's referencing allows the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Transportation or Homeland Security to basically waive this requirement for reasons. Uh, the fact that there are a list of countries where if you're coming from those countries, the scarcity of vaccines in those places means that they waive it for you as well, just because it's almost impossible to get a vaccine in Burkina Faso, Burundi, Cameroon, Chad, Cote d'Ivoire, Niger, Nigeria, Senegal, Zambia, Yemen, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the fact that there's this long list of places where this doesn't apply, you know, really suggests that it's not a public health issue that's at issue here. And whereas uh, in, a, in a segment from a couple of weeks ago, Kim, we were going back and forth about, you know, the vaccines that should be required of um, uh, the not uh, Coast Guard military workers, sorry. or, or national, yeah, the, national, the, the Guard. national Guard, the National yeah. Guard, you know, and I was making the point that there are a lot of things that are required of the National Guard. In this case, the COVID vaccine really does stand out. It's not like there's a whole host of vaccines people have to get to come to the United States, which you could argue would might be medically indicated in certain instances. No, like this seems to be an outlier, despite all of the things that exist in the world right. that could potentially and, be brought and to the country. And if it was about public health, it, it, then it shouldn't matter that this vaccine is not widely available in the countries that you mentioned, right? If it was, if it was, we have to prevent people who are unvaccinated from entering the country because there's some public health risk. Then it wouldn't matter the reason they don't have if they don't have access to vaccines. Well tough, too bad, that's, that's not great, but then they can't come here. So the fact that we do allow those people to come here just shows you that it is not for a, a actual public health reason. Yeah, or very least that there's a right. balancing test that says, okay, maybe you're a refugee coming from a war-torn place, and we're going to say your safety and getting out of there is more important than the potential risk of bringing the vaccine right. to the United States. But even that cost-benefit risk assessment suggests that the risk of any given person coming to the United States and bringing COVID isn't is that not significant? Right. right, right. And also, you know, with Novak, the reason why he was even able to play at Wimbledon is because Europe no longer has the vaccine requirements to get into Europe. So if you're an unvaccinated American, you can travel to Europe. But if you're an unvaccinated European, you cannot travel to the United States. So it is, uh, and quite frankly, the only real explanation for that, because the rest of the world is no longer really requiring vaccines for entry, is big pharma has bought off a lot of our politicians and so they continue to make decisions that benefit uh, their corporate donors but you know novak djokovic is for what the right now holds the second most uh grand slam titles in the behind uh nadal so Ra rafael nadal has 22 grand slam titles um, Novak Djokovic has 21. The U.S. Open is not so I follow tennis like a nerd, but the New York, the U.S. Open is not typically a, one of the the big. Each player kind of has their home court, if you will, like their home Grand Slam, where they tend to win the most. <coughs> I'm sorry. Novak, <coughs> no, <it's>, sorry. <coughs> I'm sorry. All right. Sorry to cut you off there, Kim. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I couldn't suppress a cough. I'll just, I'll start up. Um, 
So every player has like their home court, like their home Grand Slam where they tend to do the best. Um, for Novak, it is the Australian Open, and that is where he was banned from playing because he was not vaccinated. Now, the French Open, it's a clay court. He doesn't do as well there. That one, Rafael Nadal won, and he does really well on the grass court of Wimbledon. He, U.S. Open, even though it's a hard court like the Australian Open, he doesn't. He still doesn't typically. It's not. I mean, he's won definitely some Grand Slam titles at the U.S. Open, and he's usually in the in the finals or semifinals. But so I, maybe on this one, he can kind of say, "All right, I guess if you don't want me to play, um, it's it's not as much of a jab at him as not being able to play at the Australian Open. That was a right. huge ding to him. He wins that all the time. I mean, he's won that one like nine nine times. Something ridiculous." So, but the, the whole thing, I mean, to ban the greatest, arguably the greatest tennis player who's ever lived by stats, Novak Djokovic beats out even Federer and Nadal. He has the best overall stats. So to ban the best tennis player to, you know, not only now to live now, but maybe to have ever lived is re why are we doing this? And, you know, with Wimbledon, they banned the Russian and Belarusian players. You know, you couldn't go, you could go if you were unvaccinated to Wimbledon, but you couldn't go if you're Russian or Belarusian. But in this particular instance, with the science, if we're not going to talk about the politics of it, but just the science of it, to ban unvaccinated players from coming in makes it never made sense. It's it definitely makes even less sense now. And that is, so it's a big shame. And it makes you know, if you're another tennis player, do you really want to play in that open when you know that you're not going to be able to ever compete against the greatest? Hmm. I mean, that yeah. would be my question. I always forget what a tennis expert you are until we start talking about this, Kim. I know, right? And then I, <laughs> then I nerd out because I'm all about And really, they also banned some of the better, you know, the Wimbledon. It was a big scandal with Wimbledon because not allowing some of the Belarusian and the Russian players, they did eliminate a, a lot of the top five players were not able to play. They're from Russians pump out tennis players. And a lot of those tennis players, a lot of American tennis players, a lot of uh, tennis players from different European countries are actually Russian. Um, they switch their nationality at some point in the game because they get offered money to come and train and support that country. The woman that actually won, the female tennis player that won Wimbledon on the singles women's side actually is a Russian, but she had recently changed her nationality to like Kazakhstan. I'm not sure which it was one of the stands and she changed it because they offered her a bunch of money, you know, to. Mm -hmm to support their country instead, even though she's never lived there and she's not from there. She grew up in Moscow, but she won, even though Russians were banned from playing. But, you know, I mean, the whole thing's a disaster. Anyway, sorry, I nerded out. But mm -hmm. the whole, Novak should, no, and then they, they, they call him Novax Djokovic. Yeah. Oh. Oh. That's his. I mean, his the name. point really is that these travel restrictions just don't make sense. I mean, it's not, it's not just he should get an exemption because, I mean, that, right, that would be kind of, Right. Unfair. Well, we're just going to give an exemption, but like everyone should get this exemption because it just should not. It should not be a. Pol There's no rational public health basis for it, if there ever was. Europe doesn't do it anymore. You know, we don't need to. We don't need to stand alone. You know, it's funny the way. And actually, I guess I do disagree with you. Potentially, Kim, you said you attribute it to the influence of big pharma. I'm not really sure that's what it is in, in the, the maintenance of these restrictions. It feels like it's just. The, the identity of Team Blue, Team Democrat, to be to 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 keep these things in place, and that's just like part of their personality, and they're the people who, you know, staff these agencies and are running the government right now, and like that's just that's just what their side does. 
so I don't I don't know that it's the influence. Obviously, the influence of big pharma makes policies happen because of it. I'm not saying that like that never happens, but the maintenance of things like this seems to me to be more. Or maybe it's maybe it's not even that. Maybe it's just like bureaucratic. Like things don't go away after they're proposed. Like you know, policies that get introduced, it's really hard to unintroduce them. That's been true of not like post 9/11 style travel restrictions, right? A lot of them, they've mm -hmm. all stayed in place. In fact, they've gotten more obnoxious over time, even with like with no new rationale for for doing that. So that's why I, I don't. It's harder to explain why that is, but I, I, it's, it doesn't even need to be anything as nefarious as they're being like paid off to do it by. Vaccine manufacturers, because this seems Pfizer's to just happen in general. Giant donor. Pfizer's a giant donor of the Democratic Party. They sponsored a lot of this stuff, and uh, you know, and throw them parties. And it's a. I mean, it's definitely a big problem. So whether or not they're influenced by it because of identity or or because of big pharma money, I def. I mean, either way, big pharma is definitely in the pocket. I mean, Democrats are definitely in the pocket of big pharma. But, um, but yeah. Right. We can. We definitely can't say for sure why they're doing what it is they're doing. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll be back with friends of the show, Jordan Cheriton and Denise Long, to weigh in on the big news of the day. You don't want to miss it. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye, everybody.